when we are ill-equipped to do something really important, it can have really disastrous results. Almost 20 years ago, I was ill-equipped on my first day on the job as a whitewater rafting guide on the Nantahala River in North Carolina. Very under-equipped. So with eight teenagers in tow, I was to captain our raft down the river with efficiency and safety. You probably think you know where this story is headed, but you definitely don't know where the story is headed, I promise you. Um, the problem on this day is that I had only had one training session before taking these teenagers down the river. Uh, on this fateful day, we all showed up to the river, we put a raft in, the teenagers named it the USS Napoleon Dynamite because that's how long ago this story happened when that movie was popular. Uh, not 500 yards into the Dynamite's maiden voyage, we happened upon our first whitewater. Uh, now, in my very brief training of one day, uh, I had learned clearly that we should travel down the right side of this particular rapids and not the left side of this particular rapids. And I was confident that I could get us there. I'd had one training session, after all. Uh, you can probably guess which side I ended up on, though, uh, in these rapids. We got sucked over to the left side of the rapids. Uh, these teens and their fearless captain were heading straight into danger in these rapids. Not really. Um, you might assume that this story ends up with a flipped raft and a whole bunch of wet teenagers and a really uh, shamed captain. My head hung in shame, but you'd be wrong that that is the ending, except for the shame part. There was a lot of shame involved in this. It's actually way worse than a flipped raft. Um, so we get stuck on this rock in the middle of the rapids. And so I am forced to jump out of the safety of the raft and into the swirling, freezing cold abyss of white water uh, in those rapids and try to dislodge the raft from the rock with my shoulder, uh, which I was finally able to do successfully after a few minutes of trying while all my you know, colleagues were going right past me on the right side of the rapids and waving at me and laughing at me. Um, at this stage, you know, I dislodge us and I'm still holding onto the raft and being like sucked through the rapids at breakneck pace. Um, and we finally exit the rapids and I'm finally able to like hop back up into the boat in the safety of stiller water. But this is not the end of the story. Uh, I need to bring you up to speed on one other thing. Uh, historically for me, some of you know that I played a lot of sports growing up, in, especially in high school. And so I had a host of leftover athletic clothing that I would wear at this camp. And one of the pieces of clothing I had, clothing I had left over were these button-up Adidas sweatpants. Uh, button-up sweatpants are not designed for whitewater rafting. I'll tell you that right now. This was my fateful wardrobe choice for the day. Back to the rapids. I'd fearlessly and successfully dislodged the raft, and we are into safer water. Uh, and I'm um, hoisting myself back up into the raft, and I grabbed my paddle, and I was preparing to attack the rest of the river together with these teenagers on the USS Napoleon Dynamite. And at this point, it's important to remember my fateful wardrobe selection for the day. Those buttons were no match for the white water while I was in the rapids. And as I glanced over the side of the raft, I kid you not, I noticed something floating along right next to our boat. It was none other than my Adidas button-up sweatpants right next to our boat. Before your brain goes any further, I did have some wetsuit shorts on under my uh, button-up sweatpants, but still, that was a trip that I, and I'm sure those teenagers, will not soon forget, because it's been 20 years, and I still remember it very vividly, seeing those pants floating alongside my boat. Um, I was ill-equipped. I was unprepared. I did not have anyone in the boat 
with me who knew what they were doing to counsel me through that situation. No one exhaustively mobilized me with the knowledge of what to wear or how to respond uh, or how to, in in a tense situation, or how to make sure that we got on the right side versus the left side of the rapids. They told me how to do it, I guess, in theory, without ever showing me how to do it in reality. Without the right tools and knowledge and teaching, we are going, going, we're all going to perform less than adequately, no matter what it is that we're trying to do in life. And it's not so different in our walk with Jesus. We all need each other in this thing, in this walk with Jesus throughout our entire lives. We will never in and of ourselves have the experience or knowledge necessary to walk with Jesus in the way that we should. Each of us needs others of us to stay faithful. Each of us in here needs others of us in this room to stay faithful to Jesus until the end. This is why we have the second half of our mission statement, making and mobilizing faithful disciples of Jesus. Last week, we tackled the first half of our mission statement, making disciples. We kind of honed in on Matthew 28 and 19, if you have your Bibles open. It says this, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And so here are some takeaway questions from last week. Are you a disciple? Have you been baptized? And are you making disciples? That was Jesus' call on us last week. Those are distinct commands from Jesus in his great commission. Where are you at with these three things? I wonder. That was last week. This week, we're focusing in on verse 20. Look at verse 20. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Trinity exists to mobilize faithful disciples of Jesus. It's too bad my camp did not exist to adequately mobilize uh, rafting guides. But notice that Jesus never says go and make converts. He says make disciples, or we might say uh, make followers of Jesus. This means that more than anything, the healthiness of our church is primarily measured not by the bigness of the crowd in the seats, but by the bigness of Christ in our hearts. That's how we measure the health of a church. If we want a strong church, a church that can weather the storms of grief, like disease or death, heartache, or the storms that we are increasingly in in our post-Christian culture, antagonism towards Christians, ostracism of Christians, if we want a church that can stand even while those abusive winds blow, we must take our discipleship seriously. We must care for one another holistically. We must teach one another to observe all that Jesus commanded. Mobilize one another to observe what he has told us to do. What would it have looked like for me to be mobilized, to be a good rafting guide? Uh, It would have looked like them putting more tools in my hand and knowledge in my head to know what to do when adversity hits. This is all that we mean by mobilizing here making sure you have the right tools and the right knowledge to adequately follow Jesus faithfully every day. When the sea of life is calm and when adversity hits too. That's why we exist as a church. We must not forget why we exist. It's why you exist as a church member too. Mark Dever defines this mobilizing process like this. He says, it's deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Make and mobilize faithful disciples. Mobilizing is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. 
So when you really strip it down, this is exactly what discipleship is. Helping others follow Jesus. It's that simple. Demystify it. Discipleship is helping others follow Jesus. So do you have this kind of relationship with anyone in your life? Are you helping or being helped to follow Jesus faithfully? Each of us in here, every member of Trinity, has an integral role in this process. Paul reminded the Ephesian church that God had given the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The saints, that's y'all, that's us together. God has given the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do the work. So according to that text, the work of the ministry is on all of us, not just the ones who get paid for it. Each of us are tools in the Spirit's hands, tailor-made by God to do our mobilizing job. So some of you guys think that you are the tool that no one ever needs. I just called you a tool. I apologize for that. But some of you believe that your proper place is to be shoved into the back of the toolbox, never to be used. But that's not true. 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each To each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Spirit expertly wields us, his tools, to finish his discipleship project in each of us. This means that I need you, and you need me. It means that you're insufficient to follow Jesus on your own, and so is everyone else around you. Maybe you don't think of yourself as very valuable, or very influential, or very insightful. But you are. You're made in God's image, and you are tailor-made by Jesus to be just the thing that other people need at just the right time. Do not undervalue the gift that you've been given by the Spirit of God. While you're a member here at Trinity, you are irreplaceable. Your life experiences and interactions with the Lord over your lifetime cannot be replicated in anyone else. So we need We each need your perspective and instruction on how to live out the truth of this book. We each come with a particular angle and set of experiences. So let me urge you in two directions. First, graciously intrude into other Christians' lives to do them deliberate spiritual good. And when others take this instruction to heart, help them obey by being a person who will humbly accept those gracious intrusions from other Christians. This should be like breathe in oxygen for us. We're graciously intruding in other Christians' lives and our lives are being intruded into. We need to be humbly vulnerable. This means you're going to have to humbly receive another man or woman lovingly digging into your own life and past all that superficial stuff. People need to know the real you in order for you to flourish as a follower of Jesus. So if your marriage is in trouble... These are the people, not all of them, but some of them are the people that need to know so that they can press in and help you. Don't keep that to yourself. If you're struggling with addiction to, to opioids or to pornography, someone needs to know. They might be that obscure to- tool that the Lord will use to help break that chain in your own heart, in your own life. Don't allow the shame of your sin to keep you from coming and asking for help. Everyone here is broken. We all know it, whether or not we admit it. There's no need to hide at Trinity. It's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. God will meet us where we're at, right where we're at. 
And ordinarily, he meets us through the members in our local church. That's what he uses, the tools that he uses to help us walk more faithfully with Jesus. This means that God has you at Trinity not just to have your spiritual needs met. Maybe you came into the room this morning hoping to have some kind of need met, a felt need, a thought need. You came in to receive, but you're not just here to receive. You're also here to give, and I'm not talking about with your wallet. I'm talking about with your gifts that God has given to you by his spirit. You're not just here to have your needs met, but you're here to be a spiritual need meter too. A couple weeks ago, this picture of two trees popped up on my timeline, and I think it's a picture of what our mutual mobilization looks like in real time. The smaller tree on the left is bearing leaves only because the tree on the right is rooted in the soil. If it weren't for the rooted tree, the one on the left would be dead and rotting on the ground. At different points in our lives, we'll probably be in seasons where we're the one on the left or the one on the right. We've probably been in both. The Lord will have us rooted and fruitful for a season so that we can lift others up who are struggling. Are you rooted and fruitful right now? If so, are you investing and lifting others up with intentional spiritual good so that they become more like Jesus? Who in your life is spiritually alive right now because of the intentional spiritual good that you are doing to them? Is there anybody in your life right now that is better off because you have been investing in them intentionally for their spiritual good to make them more like Jesus? Or maybe right now you're like, you're the tree on the left. You're feeling particularly vulnerable. Maybe um, I would encourage you to tell someone, to let them help you. If you don't know who to go to, come to me and I can help facilitate that for you. We can learn a lot from trees. Look at these two trees. This is probably more representative of most of the Christian life, mutually mobilizing one another, sharing nutrients as we all grow up in our faith together and our root systems get a little bit more sturdy. Are we even doing this though, is a question. What do your conversations consist of before or after our Sunday gatherings here at Trinity? How about at C Group? Are you in relationship with other saints that feature this mutual, intentional encouragement? How about at halftime here on Sundays, the bane of you introverts' uh, experience, I know, on Sundays. Halftime isn't a break in our worship. It's actually intentionally designed to be a continuation of worship, just in a different way. Worship continues during that break still by making Jesus big in mundane conversation. It may not feel as worshipful as singing, but the function is the same using our words to help one another keep walking with Jesus. There's so much mutuality in this picture, isn't there? Both trees generous with each other, so much so that they've almost become like this singular organism. Martin Luther said that the essence of mission is essentially this. I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. This takes all the pressure off right here. This is our starting place, Trinity. I'm needy. You're needy, point to the bread, point to the bread, point to the bread. But the king of all the trees are the giant redwoods. Have you seen these things? Gigantic trees. I was reading about their root systems. I've mentioned this before, I think. Uh, I was reading about their root systems and how they are not proportional to the size of the trees. These trees gain their stability 
not by going a mile into the ground like you might think, but instead by intertwining with the roots from the other redwoods around them. That's how they stay firmly rooted in the soil. Here's a diagram of what the roots look like from underneath the soil. Each of those trees' root systems is both needy for the other trees and needed by other trees. Needy for other trees and needed by other trees. I hope this is what the diagram of our church looks like under the surface of what you see out here right now. This ought to be what we look like underneath our pretty surfaces. We all need this to be intertwining our gospel roots together to stay strong until the end. You are both needy for this church and needed by this church. All of us, we alone do not have the strength to stay the course. The New Testament says it over and over and over and over again. Our root systems alone, our root systems as singular organisms are not strong enough to stay the course. None of us. Many of you know that a little over two years ago, our family went through a sudden and horrible death with uh, Miriam's father passing away. Uh, I want to tell you, though, how our, the root system here at our church played itself out in real time. In the face of a painful death, faith wanes, doesn't it, sometimes? Like, how could God be sovereign and good? What is happening? Faith wanes, faith falters. We struggle to believe in the goodness and the wisdom of God at times. But our root systems are intertwined with your root systems. You kept us upright when we were teetering and faltering. You carried us. You sturdied us. I'm serious. Don't underestimate what those texts and cards and emails and phone calls mean. They mean the world, and they might mean someone's eternity. They were chock full of scripture and hope. Scripture and hope. But here's a question, and it's an important one for us to answer. Why should we reserve scripture and hope for only the darkest of times? Why should we be more courageous with scripture and hope only during the darkest times? I mean, I understand why they increase in intensity when you're going through hardship. That makes sense. But for all of us, that kind of faith building, root intertwining, working should be more natural, normal, and consistent. Natural, normal, and consistent. That's why none of us should undervalue this right here, the Sunday gathering. Don't stay home when you can make it. You just have no idea what other people are going through underneath the surface of their calm exterior. There are storms raging inside. I know some of them right now, but most of them I probably don't know. Sometimes these people can't sing. They don't even want to sing. But they need to hear your strong, loud declarations that God is good and that he is kind and faithful. Sometimes they can't pray, but they can hear you reading aloud the words of life as we work our way through liturgy, prayer, and scripture reading. Tish Harrison Warren speaks to the healing power of the gathered church to support and strengthen one another. Here's what she says. In times of deep pain in my own life, the belief of the church has carried me. When we confess the creeds and worship, we don't say, I believe in God the Father, because some weeks I do, and some weeks I can't climb that high. Instead, we confess, we believe. Belief isn't a feeling inside of us, but a reality outside of us into which we enter. And when we find our faith faltering, sometimes all we can do is fall on the faith of the saints. We believe together. Are you a saint 
that can be fallen into? Do you have an eye for the faltering so you can stand them back up and stick their roots back into the soil, the gospel-rich soil of the scriptures? I need that from you, and you need that from me, and we need it from each other. Some of us might be tempted to think, well, I'm basically here every Sunday. Every Sunday. I go to C group most weeks. That's pretty good, right? Totally. It's not enough. So when we talk about mobilization, we don't only mean Sunday gatherings. We don't only mean community group gatherings. What we've done here today or what we do on Tuesday nights, that's, like, that's the easy part. It's clean with a, with a hard start time and a hard stop time, you hope. Uh, but when we're talking about discipleship, it's not nearly as clean as that. There's less precision and more messiness and more gray area when it comes to discipleship the way Jesus defines it. I'm afraid some of us, and I would fall, I'd be guilty of this sometimes too, some of us content ourselves with social gatherings where the Bible is talked about or where other church members are simply present. As long as we show up to those things, we're good. But being in the same room as another Christian doesn't mean you're mobilizing them or being mobilized by them to follow Jesus more faithfully. It just means you're breathing the same oxygen as another Christian. That's not community. That's not discipleship. That's not mobilizing. On the, same, on the other hand, uh, we shouldn't overthink this either or overly romanticize it. Francis Schaeffer is helpful here. He says, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think that you can add your, into, add to your church budget and begin with discipleship. Start personally and start in your home. He says, I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your pastors. All you have to do is open your home and begin. So if we want to set Abington ablaze with the knowledge of the glory of God, like we talked about last week, like the waters cover the sea. If we want that, we need to be together stoking the fires of the love of God in the hearts of one another. When you have a fire pit in the backyard, when it is like more than six degrees or whatever it was last night, when you have a fire pit and the flames are beginning to die down, what do you do to get the flames back up again? Do you spread the coals out? No, you push them together to increase the intensity of the heat. Coals burn brighter and hotter when they are pushed together. The same with us here at Trinity. Our missional fire will burn brighter if we're consistently coming together to help one another follow Jesus more faithfully. And I think more often than not, it looks just like plain old hospitality, sharing a meal together. By this, I don't just mean share dinner together, though that's great. But we're talking about, like we talked about earlier today, inviting graciously intrusive relationships into our lives. When we grow in our desire to mobilize one another for faithfulness, this will often result in more of us spending more time in each other's lives and rhythms. Have people over for dinner. Go to the park together. Go to a movie together. Whatever. Maybe you don't have money or space in your life right now. Maybe you're a college student. Man, warm up some ramen noodles and invite us over, okay? It'll be cheap for you. It can be warmed up ramen noodles. My kids would love it. We'll save money. You'll save money because dinner's on you. And then we can enjoy being a part of each other's lives in an integral, intentional way. It's like dropping in on people on the way home from work or hanging out with people and praying after a bad day. And you can just see it all over their face. 
even celebrating a gospel conversation that someone else had with their neighbor. This is the real gritty, unspectacular life of mutual discipleship. And if it isn't clear yet, it will be soon enough in your life. Mobilizing requires us to use our words. Use words. Discipling one another simply does not happen without teaching. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. I need you to teach me. I may be one of the shepherds here, but the reality is I continue to be a sheep even while I'm a shepherd. We must teach one another what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, and that means using our words. For instance, look at this from Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession. There's some words right there. The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stirring up others and encouraging them is going to require you to use your words uh, to remind them about what Jesus has commanded or promised or encouraged or whatever. But what's the point? What is the aim of all of this mobilizing? What is the goal? Jesus didn't command us merely to teach people, but he commanded us to teach people to obey. So life transformation is the goal of Trinity's mobilization. Life transformation is the goal of our mobilization. So when you enter into covenant with our church through membership, it should be the closest you get to heaven on this side of heaven. Of course, there are bumps in that road and we experience disruptions to that. But together, we should be bent on making Trinity more like heaven by helping each other become more like Jesus. Randy Bardall once told me, give him heaven on Sunday. Um, Read into that what you will. But that's what we should all be doing for one another all the time, giving each other a little dose of heaven. In other words, our mutual discipleship isn't just about relationships. We think good relationships are the platform for fruitful discipleship, but relationship in and of itself is not the aim of discipleship. The reason we use the word mobilize is because it's not static. It's got some forward momentum to it. It doesn't, leave the room, it doesn't leave room for these fuzzy Christian relationships that never really get around to like the dirty junk of discipleship because really all they're about in the first place is relationship. Mobilizes kind of forces us into an intentional forward spiritual momentum. Constantly putting tools in each other's hands to follow Jesus more faithfully. So the aim of our mobilization is life transformation so that Trinity tastes a little bit more like heaven every time we get together. So let's be a church that is constantly scheming to do intentional, scriptural, spiritual good to one another. Intentional, scriptural, spiritual good to one another. Let's be the church that breaks the bar, the low bar of commitment to Jesus' mold. Let's be the church that really does engage in true, authentic, biblically rich community. The church that realizes there shouldn't be a single one of us that is ill-equipped as I was on that river because there are so many roots around us holding us up and teaching us the word and encouraging one another. So a few closing observations and applications for us today. Number one, develop a taste for the pleasure of discipling. Develop a taste for the pleasure of discipling. Many people spend a considerable amount of time working to acquire a taste for things like wine or caviar or whatever other things um, that are of limited or no value. 
Have you ever worked to acquire a taste, a capacity for enjoyment in things of great and even eternal worth? We need to remember, remind ourselves that discipling is actually a great joy. It's amazing to have a front row seat to see God at work, like going to work with your daddy, like we talked about last week. It's a pleasure to be used by God as a source of spiritual encouragement that produces significant and lasting eternal fruit. Discipling another person, being a conduit used by God to pour spiritual encouragement into another human life is a wonderfully potent pleasure. If you are a genuine Christian, you should have the capacity in you to find some of your greatest satisfaction in discipling other Christians or being discipled by them. Cultivate that palate. Decide that you will work to find some of your fullest joy in the expression of discipling. Second, first, develop a taste. Second, don't think that there needs to be this rigid discipler disciple relationship. Remember that tree that it was very mutual in the way that they were sharing their nutrients. Sometimes there's going to be a clear leader and a clear follower, but many times the relationships will just feel very mutual and equal. That's okay. Third, do something. Do something. None of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. Here's how this looked in a recent text exchange with someone who's actually uh, in here this morning. I said, hey man, I was thinking about you yesterday and wondering if you'd like to link up and do a book study with me or something. Maybe like every other week or something, I think it could be fun. Let me know if you're interested and I'll think about a book in a time that might work for us. He responded, that sounds really good. I've never done a book study, so let me know how it works. I know we were both busy, so it would be great to hang out sometime. Uh, that's, that's just it right there, a simple text message. And I got to be honest with you, we've stunk it up at being consistent. <laughs> we've tried um, and we've met and we've missed, but we're, we're doing our best. And I encourage you, if each of us left this room today with one person in mind to text or call and actually send the text or call or email, we'd have front row seats to some incredible movement of God in our church. Don't walk away from this thinking, oh, this is great. I hope more people at Trinity do that. Walk away asking God to help you be a catalyst in someone else's life. You go out and look for ways that you can intentionally relate to others in the church with a deliberate eye to doing them intentional spiritual good. And as we close, I want to step into the time warp that we step into just about every year at this time. Let's just imagine for a moment what that we have spent a decade on unwavering mission together. So we're pretending here that we have been making and mobilizing faithful disciples of Jesus consistently, and we've done a, a good job of it. Imagine that we've been addicted to Abington witnessing the unignorable, renewing power of Jesus, and we've kept our pedal to the metal. What heavenly havoc might we wreak? So imagine with me, it's 2033, 10 years from now. Every part of Roslyn is filled with the presence of Jesus through everyday people and everyday life. Because every member is making the gospel visible in word and deed. Every part of Roslyn has heard whisper of Jesus from one of us. We've befriended them. We're eating with them. We're sharing the good news of the kingdom with them. We're meeting the real needs of real people. There are multiple families who have chosen to adopt and foster children to feed and protect them and to share with and show them the renewing love of Jesus. It's 2033. Our church is bridging cultural and racial divides with multi-directional gospel love and dignity 
we now enjoy a multi-ethnic, multi-colored, multi-socioeconomic church family. It's literally red, yellow, black, and white. And it is precious in Jesus' sight. It's 2033. Trinity has fully embraced that there will be no gospel progress without God's prayed-for presence. So Trinity's Sunday morning prayer meeting is backed by popular demand. And there's barely enough room to contain the crowd for our prayer warriors because every member has embraced our God-given role as agents of gospel change in this world. And we each realize that in order for us to succeed, we must have the presence of God in us and among us. It's 2033. Our community group structure has been retired. Not because it was a bad idea, but because we don't need it anymore. There's not a single member disengaged or uncared for. This has nothing to do with the pastors, though. It has everything to do with other members embracing their God-given role to make the gospel visible to their Christian friends and to mobilize them for faithful discipleship to Jesus. Conversations between members center on Jesus even more than Jalen Hurts' record six straight Super Bowl MVP. Mem We're pretending, okay? It's not out of the realm of possibility. Members are in each other's homes in each other's business, and in each other's hearts, all on their own without the crutch of the program of C-groups. It's 2033. Trinity's members have started workplace Bible studies in 25 businesses in the Abington area. Unbelieving people from these studies are darkening our doors every single Sunday, hearing the hope-drenched, gospel-rich, renewing news of King Jesus. Some of them are even believing. It's 2033. Some Trinity members have left behind the American dream to go to the deepest, darkest parts of our world to plant gospel seeds that will grow into flourishing churches. They're sowing seeds that can only be harvested in eternity. It's 2033. Trinity is giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars to mission each year because of the generosity of her members. Trinity's pastors are having to work overtime to figure out what missionaries and missions to support because of the gospel-fueled generosity of Trinity's wallets being so overwhelming. It's 2033. Trinity has successfully unearthed the hidden brokenness of Abington, and she's working hard to see past the apparent wealth and security. Her members have relentlessly searched for the poor, the suffering, and the marginalized in our communities. We could go on, but we won't. Lots of dreams that we all have for the ways that God will move in us and among us. It's going to take more than 10 years to get this right, our mission and our vision. It's going to take a lifetime. 23 is going to come and go, and we're going to still fall short. And there will be a day when we cross that heavenly threshold. And like we sang earlier, and we'll sing again in a moment here, in the end, we'll see it all was worth it. But while we wait for heaven, let's bring heaven to earth by doing intentional spiritual good to one another. Let's mobilize one another faithfully so that at Trinity, it could never be said that we are ill-equipped to follow our Lord. And as we do our little part, in our little corners of the world, we'll have front row seats to God's gospel made known from the heights to the depths, from the east to the west, from the north to the south, from the city to the burbs, from the old to the young, from our spouses to our kids. This is what we're after. It's what we're fighting for. It's going to take 30 years and we're going to come up short, but that's why grace is so awesome. God meets us where we're at and he helps us.